Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas, and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government in our name treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. It's hard to go on living when your future is denied. Good morning and welcome to this bright and sunny Sunday. My name's Amanda and it's a pleasure to be with you on the airwaves. You're listening to 3CR's Refugee Radio. It's 10am and I'll be with you for the next half hour. This morning on the show, I'm very pleased to be interviewing Adelaide-based refugee rights activist Ali Reid, who has recently returned from volunteering in Calais inside the makeshift refugee camp known as The Jungle. Ali is an extremely dedicated activist, and in fact, the first time I met her, she and a fellow refugee supporter had driven from Adelaide to Melbourne to confront Brad Chilcott at a public debate he was speaking at and personally ask him to explain his campaign waged inside the Labor Party, which was pushing for delegates to vote for boat turnbacks. And although it's quite a long way from both Adelaide and Melbourne, towards the end of last year, Ali set off for Calais. We'll be speaking with her about her time in the refugee camp and her observations on the development of the situation both in Calais itself as well as the broader trend of the movement of people across the rest of Europe and the UK. Welcome to the show, Ali, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me and good morning. So I guess um, just by way of introduction, how long have you been a refugee rights activist and what prompted you to initially get yourself involved in the refugee campaign? Um, I've been a refugee rights activist for roughly six years now and um, I guess what prompted me to get involved in the campaign was, um, well, initially just an interest in social justice generally, um, but in terms of getting involved in Calais, um, I, I think I had begun to feel after several years of um, political activism in Australia and feel like I was hitting my head against a brick wall um, that uh, I just, yeah, I just felt that I wasn't making much headway or being much use. And so at the back end of last year, um, I decided to head over to Calais and see if I could be of more use in a European refugee situation than here. I I guess what it came down to was just the need to feel uh, useful um, and to feel like I was having some impact, and, and that's something that I definitely didn't feel in the Australian context over the last few years. And how long did you end up staying in Calais for? Uh, I spent three weeks in Calais in total. I was there for 21 nights. And in terms of the the, the camp at Calais, the jungle, who who is arriving? Um, so I know we have um, volunteers and we have refugees. Where, where are they coming from? Um, in terms of the refugees, they're from all the conflict regions in the world. It's a very um, multicultural place in Calais. 
Um, so you get refugees from Syria, from Eritrea, from Sudan, Morocco, Kurdish refugees, Iranian refugees, Iraqis, Sri Lankans, Pakistanis, Afghani people. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. So if they're from a conflict region, they're in Calais. Um, and in terms of the volunteers, they're mainly from the UK. Um, the large portion of volunteers are, are coming over from England. Um, there are some French volunteers. It's disappointing not to see more French people involved. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. And then there's volunteers that are also coming from different parts of Europe, so Italy and Denmark and, and all over. Um, and then there was a, a small smattering of international people like myself and others from Brazil and America and places like that. So it sounds like the camp itself is um, a pretty diverse place. Is there is there a pretty strong sense of community inside the jungle? Um, <clears throat> excuse me, dry throat. <laughs> um, the jungle is, it's, I guess, communities within a big community. So the camp is loosely divided into, um, I guess, countries. As you walk through the camp, you can sort of identify, okay, I'm in the Kurdish area now, or, you know, this is the Sudanese area. Um, and, uh, you know, so I guess it is one big large community, um, but there's lots of sort of small communities within that. And I guess it's sort of a natural thing that people um, often like to sort of group together with familiar, uh, you know, familiar people and, and um, people from their own culture because that makes them feel at home. And so you mentioned earlier that um, there actually aren't that many people from Calais, as in French locals, who are involved in the provision of aid there. Um, mm -hmm. I guess that that provides a bit of a segue to one of the things that I know we both wanted to talk about, which is what's going on currently inside the jungle, where you mm -hmm. have, um, I guess quite a bit of backlash by racists, by fascists, but also by French authorities. Do you think that that's reflected in the fact that there are not that many people from Calais who are currently volunteering in the jungle? Yeah, um, it, it is disappointing not to see more French people volunteering in the jungle. That's not to say that they're not there, um, but it, it is predominantly people from the UK. Um, I guess... You know, there is a concerted campaign. The, the French officials don't want the camp to be in Calais. Um, and so there is, you know, that concerted, like we see in Australia, concerted media campaign, etc., um, which really just portrays the camp as being, you know, detrimental to Calais. Um, the locals sort of say, you know, nobody wants to come to Calais anymore because of the camp. Um you know, that it's not safe and, and all this sort of thing. Um, I would sort of argue against that and say, actually, um, you know, when I was over in Calais, it was the middle of winter um, and, you know, it's a seaside destination. Normally it would be very, very quiet in Calais at that time of year. Um, when I was there in the middle of winter, all the hotels and all the hostels were fully booked the volunteers are dining in their restaurants, they're shopping at their supermarkets and they're supporting the local economy. So the argument that uh, the refugee camp is negatively affecting Calais in some ways doesn't stand up. Um, but, you know, I guess the French people there 
listen to the media and they're frightened and um, they believe it. And so there is a lot of public backlash against the refugees in Calais. And so I guess as well as those providing aid, um, we're, we're also seeing, you know, quite a few right wing forces that have in some instances been physically attacking the camp in the jungle, often with the cover of, say, French police, for example. What do yeah. you think the, the challenges are for people inside the jungle at the moment? Um, I think... Well, yes, there is definitely a strong uh, French nationalist right-wing um, group of people that's, you know, not just in Calais, but um, sort of mobilising across Europe. Um, and the, nat- the French nationalists do come to the camp and actively seek out the refugees. Um, they have come armed and they will attack refugees both in the town of Calais and also in the camp. Um and I guess they, what happens is they come to the camp, they, they uh, provoke the refugees, and when the refugees finally retaliate in some form, they then retreat behind the French riot police that are permanently stationed at the camp, and the, the police then use tear gas and rubber bullets and batons against the refugees um, and not against the, the nationalist antagonists. Um, I personally think that the French right-wing are no better than Reclaim Australia here and I just think they're they're cowardly and they can only argue their point through violence and not through logic or educational facts. So, I mean, I think the biggest challenges for people now that are inside the jungle are um, definitely these attacks from the French nationalists. They they don't have freedom of movement because of that. Um, Also, the, the... French government are actively um, seeking to demolish the camp. Um, yeah, I, under- so- I understand that in the last week or so, they, they have in fact begun demolitions of places that even they previously said they weren't going to touch. Is that the case? Yes, that's true. So um, recently they uh, demolished a, what they call a 100-metre dead zone um, which uh, in the jungle, which is... I guess, designed to keep um, the refugees away from the roads because they uh, often congregate on the roads to try and jump on trucks to get across the border to the UK. Um, And there's various reasons for that that we can go into later. Um, So they cleared this 100-metre dead zone, which um, involved literally the volunteers had to move um, hundreds of people and their shelters um, and then they came in with bulldozers and flattened it. Um, they promised that they wouldn't demolish the church and the mosque, and um, uh, a week later they came in and they did demolish it, um, which was really distressing for both the refugees and the volunteers. And since then they've issued an eviction notice now for um, the southern part of the jungle, which is where the bulk of the population is. It's where... Um, you know, a lot of the schools that have been set up and the churches and um, places where people congregate, that's where the bulk of, of all of that is. Um, so the French authorities have estimated that there's about 800 people in that location, but they, they clearly can't count because there's probably more, more likely around 3,000 people um, that are, you know, currently 
sort of nestled in that area. Um, I believe that there's been a court injunction that's being pursued against that demolition. That's all well and truly still in progress at the moment. But it causes a lot of distress to the refugees because, firstly, where are they supposed to go? Um, and it causes distress to the volunteers that have worked tirelessly for months um, trying to make you know this life into something of dignity for the refugees, and that's all about to be bulldozed. Um, so it's very, very distressing. That, yeah, I mean, that, that certainly does sound like it's not only distressing, but actually, you know, almost deliberately compounding the trauma that a lot of people would have been through um, in order to even arrive at Calais in the first place. Um, yeah, and, and on top of that, they're also, it's just the, the day-to-day, where am I going to live? It's freezing cold and all I have is this little tent or this little hut and that's suddenly going to be taken away. Um, the French have put um, shipping containers on the uh, site in Calais, which they're, um, I believe it's coercion. They're, they're saying, okay, we're going to demolish the camp, but you have the choice of moving into these wonderful shipping containers. Um, for you know, To gain access to that, you need to provide your palm print Um, It's a palm print electronic entry system. And a lot of refugees are really frightened about having their palm print logged and tracked, um, especially after, you know, circumstances that they've come out of and their experience with their own governments and brutality. Um, So, you know, they're sort of, yeah, the French authorities are saying, well, you can move into these heated shipping containers, um, but you have to essentially hand over your identity to us Um, or you need to you know disperse yourself throughout other housing um, options around France and there's been rumours that you know that people go to these these um, housing options and then they're they're either uh, their asylum applications either refused and they're deported or um, they're turned away and they need to go back to the jungle because they've got nowhere else to go so it's it's just displacing people who are already displaced. And so I guess um, one thing that also strikes me is amongst all this trauma and amongst all this um, these deliberate attacks from the very crass and obvious of people sort of, you know, arriving with rubber bullets and tear gas and fascists coming along for the ride, right down to the the daily grind and making that almost unbearable for people to survive is just the sheer resilience of a lot of people who have arrived in in the jungle in Calais. I've read a few stories, including some on your blog, that kind of really, um, I don't want to use the word inspiring because I think that gets used just a little bit too much, but certainly um, <laughs> certainly these, these really sort of distinctively resilient patterns of behaviour that people display, you know, they've, they've come from a war zone or they've come from, a, you know, survivorship of ethnic cleansing and they get to Calais and they're not helpless bystanders you know they don't necessarily just wait around for other people to do things for them they're you know really resourceful and really proactive and you know people have set up you were mentioning huts you know these are built from scrap wood and and supplies that volunteers have managed to get 
but also people have set up, you know, kitchens and restaurants and there are schools for the kids in the camp. So mm. I, I'm, I'm guessing you would have some pretty amazing stories that have stuck with you about, you know, things in that vein of the camp as well. Definitely. I mean, that was probably one of the things that really struck me about Calais was it is the biggest slum in Europe and it it doesn't have the support that even some of the refugee camps in um, developing countries have. Um, so the conditions there, it's hard to believe that you're in France. The conditions are incredibly bad in Calais. That being said, um, I was just stunned at what people have been able to do to make life as comfortable is not the right word, but to, to just make the best of a bad situation while they're there. Um, and the innovation in the jungle um, is amazing. Um, so the jungle does have schools and a, lib- a little library that they've set up and restaurants and they've made a, um, a theatre there and there are kitchens. Um, now, some of these have been set up in conjunction with... Um, some of them are set up by volunteers. Um, a, a lot of uh, places are run in conjunction with refugees and volunteers or the refugees have set them up themselves with volunteer support. Um, so, you know, there is a lot of innovation and resilience and, and even down to just the little things. The, the refugees are incredibly resourceful in terms of what they can get their hands on. I saw little huts that had, as you said, been built out of, you know, scrap wood and um, wooden pallets and tarpaulins and then they've rigged up, um, they've used like a sleeping bag as the doorway. So when you open the zipper of the sleeping bag, you're opening the door to the little hut. And just little things like that really made me marvel. I sort of looked and went, I would have never thought to do that. <laughs> um, and it, it was, you know, all, little things like um, you'd walk past the, these really rudimentary little huts and somebody's gone and put, you know, a pot of flowers outside their front door to just try and make it nicer. Um, and it's pretty amazing when you see, you know, the mud and the filth and the horrible conditions and then you see this, you know, bright pot of yellow flowers on the doorstep of this little hut. Um, and I think that, for me, it just... I always think about that little pot of flowers <laughs> because it it represented the bigger hope that people have um, and the ability to find something beautiful in something really quite difficult. Um, There's one group that's really dear to my heart. Um, They're on Facebook and they're called Jungle Eye. Um, And they're a group that, um, if the refugees have set it up themselves, they um, basically use their own cameras, their own phones to photograph um, life in the jungle and tell their own story through images. And they've turned these into postcards, um, and their postcards have gone all the way to number 10 Downing Street to David Cameron, and they've they've gone all over Europe, um, and they've put little exhibitions in the town centre of Calais, and they're starting to, to reach out through images. Um, and I think it's really powerful, because they're, they're telling their own story, and it's it crosses language barriers. Um, and it's from their point of view. And I think that sort of thing is, is the most powerful thing when the refugees actually 
you know, reclaim their voice and their power and do something for themselves. Well, I definitely think that we might have to provide a link on our on our Facebook page to that. Yeah, um, they'd love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, what a what a beautiful retelling. Actually, I'm sitting here feeling quite moved from that. The um, <sighs> one thing that you did mention was, um, I guess, a nice segue to one of the questions I wanted to ask you is that. Um, these postcards have gone where the refugees themselves want to get to but are increasingly finding that they can't, which is to the UK. Um, So I know that that's becoming increasingly and extremely difficult um, for people to actually get there. And, you know, we read horrible stories about some of the the tragedies that have been occurring um, with people who are desperately trying to get into the UK. You know, people have perished in the backs of trucks. People have died on train tracks. Have you been in communication with people who have managed to get through to the UK, who have somehow managed to, you know, trump this process? Yes, I have. Um, it's got to be said that it's very, it's it's rare. Um, I know the view of the French and, and the British is that there's, you know, floods of people coming via, um, you know, the Channel Tunnel. And it, it's just not like that. It is incredibly difficult to get from France to the UK. Um, I only personally know of one uh, friend that I made in the jungle who made it. He, um, I, I don't know a lot of details about how, <laughs> um, the ins and outs. I just know that he, he was in the back of a lorry, uh, which was loaded onto the ferry and he made it across. Um, he's an unaccompanied minor, so he's now in um, a centre for unaccompanied minors in the UK. Um, it is, yeah, it is very dangerous. Um, for refugees, you know, they're, they're getting in the backs of trucks. There, there have been stories of people that have frozen in the back of refrigerated vehicles. There's been people that have been um, buried under boxes that have shifted during the journey and been crushed. Um, and and just people, I mean, when you go through the jungle, you see people with injuries because they've, you know, they've tried to jump on a truck and they've come off and there's broken bones or they've cut themselves up on the road um so it's it's not something they're doing for fun <laughs> that's for sure um and the whole of calais just crawls with police for miles there's a huge police presence and security um and refugees will walk for hours to try and find somewhere that they can try and, and you know find a truck um I know of one Syrian girl, her her husband has been in Plymouth um, as an accepted refugee in the UK for a year and a half, and she's been refused to be reunited with him. The UK government won't accept her. So she tries, she's about 24 years old, she tries to jump on the backs of trucks every night. Mm. And when I met her, her hands were, were cut to pieces, she had bandages on from falling on the road. Um, so there's women and children also um, trying to get to the UK through this method. Um, There was one young man that I met from Sudan um, on about my ninth day in Calais. I met him outside of one of the kitchens and um, we chatted for a while. His name was Yusuf. He was a really lovely young guy. Um, 
when I got home from Calais, I was reading a news article about a Sudanese refugee who was killed trying to make the crossing. He, he was hit by a van and the paramedics took an exceedingly long time to respond and he died of cardiac arrest on the road. Um, and I was thinking, oh, that's awful, how, how terrible. And then I scrolled down through the article and they had a picture of um, Yusuf in his um, Muslim funeral shroud and I looked at the face and realised that it was Yusuf that I met outside the kitchen. Um, and that really, really, you know, that really broke me. Um, so it, it is very dangerous um, and just, uh, you know, it's rare that people make it across safely, but it does happen. Um, oh, goodness me. It's, um, it's, it really is bringing home to me actually some of the, you know, perhaps different, different specifics of the circumstances that people find themselves in, but the, the despair and the, the measures that they are forced to, um, you know, I, I'm seeing some of these things mirrored in the way that we treat refugees. You know, some sometimes people are driven to despair by neglect. Sometimes people are driven to despair by design. And um, I'm hearing a lot of that in in what you're saying. Um, obviously, though, the resilience of these people is, however, just another thing that's constantly coming through. Um, I guess to to finish the final question I I wanted to ask you um, I've read uh, a number of I guess different differing opinions about um, the the types of aid that are provided who's providing the aid you mentioned earlier that you know the most powerful thing that refugees can do is to um, you know tell things from their own voice and in terms mm. of the aid that's provided um, I guess, from organisations like the UN and the Red Cross and various French-based aid. So there are, by all accounts, some quite wide discrepancies between how this aid is delivered. So some of it's very mm -hmm. useful, some of it's very respectful to asylum seekers. And then, you know, you read things about sometimes it's completely, you know, incompetent, it's bureaucratic. I've read, um, you know, in parts of Europe, not necessarily in Calais, but certainly in parts of Greece, in places like Bulgaria, that sometimes um, aid agencies will actually, you know, collaborate with people who would potentially harm asylum seekers, notably mm -hmm. police forces. Um, and in mm. fact, I've also read similar things about journalists. So mm. what's your experience and, uh, you know, been and the observations that you've made about the type of aid that's delivered in, in Calais? Mm, okay. Um I'll try and keep it brief because it's fairly complex, but I think the first important point to make about Calais is that there are no um, official aid agencies in Calais, uh, such as the UNHCR or Red Cross. They're just not there. And the reason for that is the French government don't want Calais to be um, considered an official camp and uh, therefore by keeping its unofficial status, they can deny access um, so the only official aid that is provided is um, Médecins Sans Frontières and Médecins du Monde, the doctors of the world. Um, and uh, they, they're they there because the French, under international law, must uh, provide medical care. Um, but aside from that, there are no big aid agencies on the ground. What is there um, is volunteer organisations, which are grassroots organisations. And they're doing the best that they can, but they are grassroots. They don't have the big budgets. They don't have 
um, you know, necessarily uh, huge amounts of experience. And so they're kind of flying by the feet of their pants and just trying to keep up. Um, so uh, there's two main volunteer organisations on the ground there. There's Le Beige des Migrants and there's Care for Calais, um, which is a new um, British-based uh, um, charity that's started up in there. Um, that was all really new when I when I was there. Care for Calais was new on the ground and Le Beige had been there for about a decade. Um, and they're still sort of learning how to work together to work smarter and not harder and get the best outcomes for people in the camp. Um, but apart from that, there's it is just grassroots efforts. Um, and I think that there's things that could be done better um, by those organisations, um, such as, you know, harnessing the skills of the various volunteers that go through there. Um, for example, nobody knew that I had been a, a refugee rights um, advocate in Australia. Nobody asked me that. Nobody knew that I had a degree in international development. So I think there's a lot of wasted talent going through Calais. Um, and I think also they need to be a little bit better about uh, providing ways for people to debrief when they leave the camp because it is that the reverse culture shock is um, definitely something I experienced and trauma um, and there's a lot of people going through their volunteering and sort of walking away and there's no support for the volunteers. So. I am so sorry to have to cut you off Ali but we've, we're right. out of time. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been Amanda, thank your you. host. This has been Refugee Radio. Thank you so much for joining us.